Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights, brought to you from Cybos, which this year comes from the Excel Center in London. Before we get started, of course, I've got to remind you that you might have heard we made a documentary. It's called 11 Years, The Rise of UK Fintech, and it's available on 11years.film. And everybody asks, why is London a global financial center and what's going to happen in the shadow of Brexit? Well, check out 11years.film and share it with your network using hashtag 11years. All right, let's get on with today's show. Last week, we brought you an interview mashup focusing on tech and payments infrastructure, looking specifically at international companies in that space. This week, we bring you two interviews from two different industry leaders. First up, David spoke to Paul Stoddart, president of new payments platforms at MasterCard. Let's hear from him now. Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews, coming to you live from Cybos 2019 in London. I'm David Breer, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Paul Stoddart, President on New Payments Platforms, that's a mouthful, at MasterCard. How's it going? <laughs> that's great, thank you, yes. I'm not so keen on the name myself, but yeah. I mean, you must uh, have quite long business cards, that's all I'm saying, is, uh, <laughs> but it's impressive nevertheless. So uh, uh, thanks for coming in and chatting to us thank today. Thank you. How have you found Cybos so far? Um, I love Cybos. I think it's uh, certainly in my top two annual events. Um, and uh, it's good to be in London. Uh, Sydney was a long way, uh, but it was still, for us, very productive and has been for the last sort of 10 years or so. Um, our focus of our business is increasingly on the banking side of, of payments. And so for us, this community is uh, really all of our customers and partners. So mm. it's good. Well, and I think you guys have been, I mean, a real pivotal part of the, the, the ecosystem, I yeah. think, in, in banking and fintech more yeah. broadly for, I mean, for a long time, particularly yeah. in the payment side of things, obviously, mm. in terms of the, the sort of core side of kind of mm. what you do. I think it's, what is it, nine out of the 10 top fintechs have got a MasterCard logo on them. So that's, that's pretty good going. Yeah. Um, maybe to start with, tell us a little bit more about your role specifically sure. in MasterCard. So about uh, three years ago, MasterCard decided that the space that they play, as in the carded payment space, um, was, of course, a very attractive and growing space in the market. But they recognized it was only um, a relatively small part of the market. Uh, and so the, the space, uh, which is real-time payments, ACH, B2B payments, etc., is at least five times larger than the carded space. Mm. Uh, we're talking hundreds, trillions of dollars of flow. And so for MasterCard, they took a step into that space through the acquisition of a company called Vocalink, um, who operates the faster payments and the clearing systems here in the UK. Uh, and so over the last two and a half years, we've been growing out that business unit. Um, and so the business unit I look after comprises Vocalink, and it also comprises other clearing and settlement uh, assets. We sort of call that the infrastructure layer of, of payments. Um, then in the application layer, we have assets like bill payment, Transactus, Transfast, um, pay by account. Uh, these types of products are sold to banks and to corporates, um, and they drive transactions to the infrastructure. Mm. And then we have a services layer, which is sort of fraud, risk management, analytics, etc., intelligence, if you like really building, building capability off of the data that's flowing in the payment. So new payment platforms, whilst it's new for MasterCard, uh, it is not new for the rest of the banking and, and uh, uh, payments world. And so uh, new payment platforms is really about taking MasterCard beyond cards 
and participating in all those flows um, in, in that much larger space in the market. I mean, arguably, um, I mean, payments was probably like the earliest, uh, given, given, you know, fintech. I mean, maybe the first sort of mm. touch point mm. was, you know, people putting slightly lipsticky on pigs on websites. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. after that, actually, yeah. payments was the first place that disruption mm. really sort of started to happen, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, in the US, things like Venmo. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. over here, we obviously have faster payments. Yeah. So there was a sort of a change there. But I, but I guess, you know, the disruption in payments feels like went away for a little mm. while. Mm. But with everything in yeah, the open banking yeah. space and everything yeah. that's happening, like, I mean, it's fun times to be doing this yeah. stuff. But how, how do you see this battle kind of shaping out? Uh, absolutely. And um, every dog has his day, basically. Uh, and payments actually has been having its day for a while now. And you said it sort of went away a bit. And I think, I think there is, there's some reasons for that. And I'll touch on that. Um, but a lot of industries got disrupted by the internet. Payments ultimately are fundamental users of an underlying communications infrastructure. So it was quite inevitable that the internet was going to disrupt the payment landscape. Yeah. Um, what, was, what was interesting perhaps is, is how and when. Mm. And it really, first wave was really about, okay, I can now buy and shop over the internet. And so payments over the internet became the first part of the payments world that got really disrupted. <clears throat> Uh, at the same time, though, there, there were other innovations in payments, chip and pin on cards to increase security, now contactless to increase usability and take cards down into the um, lower transaction value range that cash was, was typically used for. Um, and so I think that was really the first wave. Then we had the economic crisis, which I think put a lot of things on hold. And even Faster Payments was launched in 2008 yeah. in the UK. Um, most banks were just worrying whether they were still going to be in business in 2008. So um, there was a lot going on that, that was distracting uh, the ecosystem from innovation yeah. more onto survival. What we've seen since, since the markets coming out of the crisis, since the banks coming out of the crisis, is uh, around the world, and it really is a global um, phenomenon, is that central banks are, are now saying, right, you know, we really need to invest in the infrastructure of our country. And it's not just building a road or an airport, it's about modernizing the payment infrastructure yes. in the country to make it fit for the digital society, fit for the just-in-time business and the on-demand, you know, the consumer, I want to do everything now and quickly, immediately. So we've seen in the last five years, uh, but in particular, I find that's accelerating now, is the drive towards real-time payments by countries all over the world. And so, you know, having our heritage with the Vocalink business in the UK, your MasterCard is now implementing real-time payment systems and building out applications and services propositions in many markets from, from Latin America, Asia Pacific, Middle East, Europe. I mean, we're, we're literally operating across all the regions now. Um, that brings its own challenges, but nevertheless, um, what I'm looking at is a world where real-time payments will be a hygiene factor within the next five to ten years. Yeah. Every country will have it. The question is, how will people be using it? And the real exciting things is, will they be using it differently? 
will we see different use cases and applications developed in Asia versus Latin America or Africa versus Europe mm. um, and obviously the role that the banks will play in that overall ecosystem and the open banking um, trend that we're seeing now I think will reinforce that acceleration of change actually yep. and disruption. I mean, I think that's really interesting because it's um, it's something we take for granted a lot. Mm. You know, we're in Cybos in London. We take in London that faster payments is a thing that happens everywhere. Yeah. You know, if you go to, I mean, the US, yeah. you know, rather big geography, yeah. um, you know, it isn't the case. And actually, yeah. I mean, that, that gap between those cracks has led to, um, I mean, a lot of fraud yeah. and potentially um, other opportunities for other players to kind of yeah. come into that space. Yeah. But I, I think it's really interesting because, uh, I mean, I mean, even even in the base level payment side of things, uh, which obviously you guys have facilitated yeah. so for such a long period of time, banks and big organisations mm. haven't really maximised the capability Absolutely. that's been offered yeah. to them. Yeah. You know, if you yeah. look at, I think even just on basic level transactional data, mm. um, you know, metadata that you as Mastercard were yeah. passing back to them for probably you know since faster payments was really mm. sort of enacted, if not before that, they would drop every single piece of that data other than one which yeah, was yeah. the amount uh, and maybe like a random code yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's sort of taken somebody to come along and do first principles and yeah. and actually think well wouldn't it be nice if we actually you know showed a logo or told yeah. them specifically where that was or you know aggregated those things together yeah so i mean to your point payments almost should be hygiene yeah but actually, it can do so much more. Yeah, absolutely. And I know yeah. you guys are spending yeah. a lot of time looking at those, what are those additional things exactly that you can right. work on? Yeah. And actually, how can you create that value for yeah. those big organizations? Do you want to talk a little yeah, bit more sure. about that? Yeah, sure. So uh, that's exactly what we describe as the sort of applications and services layers in the ecosystem. And um, uh, it's funny, you, you, you pick on a very good example of how uh, you're, you're as strong as your weakest link. So the amount of data that we can now carry so that our modern platforms that we've put into Thailand and funnily enough that we've also put into the US now with the clearinghouse um, have the capacity to carry you know, orders of magnitude more data within the payment transaction um, and one of the challenges for adoption of these services is the fact that the banks have to ensure that their systems can consume that amount of data because as you said you know, what happens otherwise is they strip it out and so you, you think god that's a waste with all that data so um, I think there's probably two or three areas where we see um, impetus and, and urgency probably needs to be um, uh, brought back into that ecosystem and it is around the, the ability to carry the data so if you talk about open banking, I don't think we're very far away from open data where, where every company has to make available to you and people with your permission uh, the data that they hold on you. Um, and so from a bank's perspective, they've got to be uh, investing in their systems, not just at the front end, but right the way through so that they can take the data and use that data to enhance the services that they deliver back. Obviously, we need to do that in a secure way, in a safe way. Um, and building out that product set uh, for us is also about building products that prevent risk and fraud from entering the system. Mm. So we run a service in the UK that looks at all the bank accounts in the market in real time and looks for odd behavior between them. So money moving between accounts very quickly, that's not normal mm. and, and therefore that sets off alarm bells. So that's just an example of one service. We help another bank 
that is looking at invoices coming in from their corporate customers and those invoices will say, please pay me, I've just supplied you with. Now you'd be surprised to know that uh, the, the, the strength of the system around an invoice, uh, actually there are some weaknesses in that and, and that is a big type of fraud where someone will just submit an invoice to the bank, say pay it, when actually it's a fraudulent company. Yeah. So that's another service we've developed with a couple of the banks where we help them identify very specifically that invoicing yeah. fraud. And then in the, in the retail payment space, um, we're also, we also have a service called Pay By Account or Pay By Bank in the UK. And what that does is it allows the whole basket of goods that's been purchased to be carried as information in the transaction nice. rather than dropped out. Nice. So anyone that's legitimately allowed to participate in that data flow can see what's being bought, where it's being bought, how much is being paid for yeah. it, and also be able to help the merchant and the customer optimize that relationship. So do you want to buy the same thing you bought last time when you were here? And that was two days ago. Yeah. And, and by the way, the price has gone down. And all these really useful and helpful things that are all driven from the data. I mean, I mean let's just linger on those slightly because yeah. you know, people talk about, um, uh, I, I think, product, uh, Payments have been considered a product yeah. for too long. Yeah. And actually, the things that you're describing, you, you keep using the word service, yeah. which is, is fundamental mm. to this, I think. And, yeah. you know, the first use case you're talking about potentially uh, being able to dramatically spot yeah. uh, fraud, fraud and, and money yeah. laundering at, in, at a great scale. Mm. You know, only a network can do that. It's Absolutely. not really yeah. just yeah. A, an organization, an individual organization in it, but you guys span all of the organizations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, in the, uh, the, the sort of third use case that you're, you're kind of describing there, similarly, actually the, the benefit both to the organizations and the individuals in that is, yeah. is huge. So, yeah. I mean, these are, these are big problems that are being addressed. Yeah. It isn't just a, you know, do I get paid on time and is my, is my money moving around the no. system quick enough? This yeah. is solving yeah. like uh, economic or mm. environmental problems. Uh, so, you know, I talk about, we talk about faster payments and instant payments and the first thing everyone jumps on is, well, does everything have to be instant and do we really need faster payments? And, and I think that's just missing the point. You know, the fact that they're fast for some people, for certain use cases, is a material difference and is a good thing. Mm. But that is missing the point. Um, the, the real value and the real benefits that come out of modernizing a national payment system reach right across the economy. Um, when I uh, sat down a few years ago with the central bank governor in, in Thailand, and he laid out for me his objectives for modernizing Thailand's payment infrastructure. Um, his objectives were um, increasing financial inclusion, removing risk and fraud, and reducing cash usage, um, which obviously has benefits for governments, uh, mainly through taxation. Um, so they're, they're, they're the motivations behind the central bank. And so we worked with them to implement something called Prompt Pay, which is their new national payment system. Um, it's been live for two years, has been possibly the fastest growing payment system in the world, mm. certainly that I'm aware of. Um, over 40 million consumers in Thailand use it. Um, all the banks are connected to it and use it. The government uses it. Uh, and what we've done there is we've just a, connected... Just a small pilot then, that's great. <laughs> <Yeah. here. laughs> and what we've done there is we've brought the e-wallet community. Mm. So lots of citizens in Thailand are unbanked yep. or... They don't have a payment card, but they do have a mobile phone mm. and, and a, an electronic wallet attached yeah. to that phone. So what we've done there is we've worked with um, 
the wallet community to connect them into the payment system. Mm. So it doesn't matter whether they have a wallet or they have a bank account, yeah. they can transact yeah. and they can be included in that, in that exciting new payment system rollout. Um, so that's just a, a small example of how the wider benefits to the economy and society come through that modernization. Well, it's, it's great, like you say, the sort of democratization of those things really sort of brings yeah. them about. What, um, I mean, you guys have, as I sort of said at the top of this, you've been probably there from the beginning, particularly in the yeah. UK and yeah. European fintech sector. Yeah. And I'd say arguably some of the, the partnerships that you did at the beginning yeah. really allowed you to be at the front of those yeah. conversations. Yeah. Um, I mean, how important do you think that has been in terms of the success now Huge. with major players? Because yeah. it, it feels like the old dogs are trying to learn some new tricks now. And yeah. I mean, you, they must come to you and go, how can we do what you guys did with Monzo or Exactly. Whatever? So it's huge because um, we have a responsibility to provide uh, our expertise, our innovation, appetite, our experience from many markets and with many customers. Um, we have a responsibility to bring that back into our product development roadmaps and our life cycles and then offer that back out to customers. Um, and really the only way you can learn and learn quickly is to make sure you have all those relationships mm -hmm so that we have a healthy fintech community of customers and partners who are driving innovation at one pace, yeah. often faster than anyone else, mm -hmm. but, um, but at one pace and at one level. <clears throat> but also, you know, being a very bank-centric organization, MasterCard uh, operates really to support our banks globally in, in providing services to them that they can then sell on and incorporate with their own products to their customers. Um, it's important for us that we bring that learning into that product development life cycle. Um, so, you know, learning, you know, we learn every day. And somebody said to me yesterday, in fact, every day is a school day, mm. which in this industry, it really is yeah. uh, because the, the space is moving so quickly. Technology is moving so quickly. Our job is to make sure that we can bring the best of those worlds together to support all of our customers and partners. Mm. And I, and I think at that stage, let's like say, you know, purely from a purely from a cultural perspective, and all, the organisation needs to uh, love this stuff. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I, actually, that's the yeah. thing that I kind of get a lot when I have conversations with with people from Mastercard yeah. is that um, you're not just excited by how the industry is changing; you're mm. fundamentally wanting to change it. Yeah. Which I think is really, really exciting. Well, you know, it, the the passion that I've seen. So I've been part of Mastercard now for for three years since the acquisition of, of Vocalink. And uh, I've been, uh, in, in some cases, uh, overwhelmed by the ambition and the passion for which the company and its management team have. Um, and so I think you need that. I, I think you've got to have that because it drives you and it motivates you. And it, and it drives you to be better and to improve. And a willingness to also recognize that there are things going on within the industry that could be opportunities and threats yeah. to the MasterCard business. And so it's only through being willing to expose yourself, take a few risks, participate in, in those parts of the industry that could present those threats, that you have an opportunity to shape them. Mm. Um, some will still be threats and there will be nothing that anyone can do about it. But actually, 
if we're willing to do some of that to ourselves, then yeah. we'll be a stronger organization for it. Completely agree. I think it's the, the changing environment. It's the, the old quotes around evolution. Mm. You know, I mean, mm. it's sort of not for everybody. Uh, and yes, it's not uh, it's sort of not optional. So, uh, <laughs> you know, being in a situation where you're continually looking to evolve and continue yeah. looking to adapt to the environment, globally, I'd say payments and everything that actually MasterCard takes to the market yeah. is changing so dramatically yeah. Yeah. that actually in order to compete with not only, uh, I mean, you know, the, the direct competitors, yeah. but actually with what clients' <clears throat> aspirations are, yeah. then you're having to continually sort of reinvent yeah. yourself and push yourself forward. It doesn't and, slow. I mean, it's, it's why... When people get excited by things like Apple, yeah. um, Apple can create a new product and get it out to market every mm. 18 months. Mm. Uh, actually, this is where you guys are really sort of leading, yeah. I'd say, is yeah. the new services, new yeah. capability that's coming in. But I mean, sort of, I guess looking specifically at London, you yeah. know, we're sat here again. Um, you know, Cybos has come back here. Mm. You know, we're seeing, I think it's 40% of all European yeah. VC investment is into inside the M25. Yeah. Um, I mean, how important is London to what you guys are doing and yeah. the innovations that are happening here? So L London is playing an increasing role within MasterCard. Um, you know, people often talk about it being, you know, part of Europe, but no, don't know for how much longer. Um, all of that is very disruptive, that dialogue at the moment, and it's a shame that it's continuing. Um, but London itself has a lot more going for it than just the, the headlines that, that are being discussed uh, when, when we talk about Brexit. Uh, so the ability to source talent is, is uh, I think, one of the most critical factors uh, going forward. So you know, what London brings is a pool of talent and experience, um, often very diverse. Uh, you can get great language skills, great technology skills, uh, great banking skills, great um, pharmaceuticals, you know, it, it is really broad in terms of the skill set that, that you can source. Um, plus, I think, the, you, we talked about the passion earlier. When you've got not just the corporate sector and, and the banks, but also the government really coordinating their efforts to support fintech, stimulate the growth and development of new companies. Plus, I, I also like to think that that the, that the UK brings a, a, a very um, sort of tolerant and thoughtful approach to doing business overseas. Mm. So we don't, we don't go out there uh, with a one size fits all. You know, we go out there with a, actually, of course, we should be localizing what we're offering. Mm. Um, we believe that we bring real value to other markets and other companies and, and so on. Um, and so, you know, there's so many things that make London an exciting place to be and work. Um, we've just got to not not forget those things as we go through the the next six months of turmoil. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree. I think um, you know, come what may with Brexit, I think all the ingredients that are still yeah. here will be here. Yeah. Um, I was with um, John Glenn uh, and Harry yeah. Baldwin yeah. on Monday, and they highlighted exactly the same mm. thing as you did. Yeah. Uh, actually, that talent is the most critical thing mm. in London. Yeah. Has been in every industry. Uh, and it's on them specifically to ensure that actually we have the potential to still attract yeah. the best talent on yeah. the planet yeah. to London because essentially it's the thing that makes everything happen. Absolutely.
All right. Um, before we just wrap up, yes. maybe a, a few more bits about, about you specifically. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, you know, career in Vocalink yeah. and MasterCard. Yeah. I mean, you've probably been given crazy amounts of career advice. Um, <laughs> but a lot of our listeners are, uh, you know, as well as, you know, CEOs of banks are people looking to try and get into this industry. Yeah. What would be the sure. career advice you would give them? So, I mean, I spent uh, nearly 20 years in banking before I went to Vocalink and uh, ended up here. So, for me, um, actually, I think you need, a, you need a good... To be in payments and payment technology, it, is, it requires a, quite a high degree of subject matter expertise, perhaps more than some. I mean, that may sound obvious, but I think it's really important because when we're going and talking to a bank or a central bank or a government... Um, they're expecting us to be the subject matter expert, to be able to tell them why they should be thinking about their national payment system in this way or why they should want to do it like this and why they shouldn't do it like that. So um, I would say that you have to be a master of your topic uh, and if you're not, you get found out quite quickly. Um, and so I, I would encourage anyone thinking about in this part of, of banking, uh, and I do sort of classify payments as a part of, of banking. Um, I do think it's it's uh, something that needs you need to make sure you understand what it is you're you're doing. Yeah. Um, and again, I don't want to sound uh, patronising, but that's probably the single biggest um, piece of advice I could give someone. Uh, and and what that tends to mean then and demonstrate to somebody sat on the other side of the table is that you're very passionate about what you do, that you do have an attention to detail and you're not, um, you're not kind of operating at 30,000 feet and that's it. Um, so I, I have uh, really enjoyed my time working in the banks, uh, then working in a payments company that sort of provides services to the banks. Um, and now working in a company that, a bigger company that provides services to banks and corporates and billers and digital uh, giants and so forth. Um, but all along the way, I've, I've made sure that before I sit down in front of a customer and, and give them some advice, that I'm actually qualified to give them that <laughs> advice. <laughs> I mean, it is amazing. Um, it is amazing how many, and uh, like obviously naming no names, but it's, it's amazing how many people who work in banking who don't have that yeah. low level grasp of the fundamental how yeah. banking works. Yeah. And also I'd say, I mean, for anybody listening to this who sits in a bank, you've got to kind of look at the big, the big network. Yeah. Uh, you know, you described uh, central banks yeah. and actually you know, if you if you draw a diagram and, and tie together how yeah. local banks work together, yeah. how the payments rails ties everything together, but then how central banks regulate yeah. and, and pull together, yeah. like actually most people don't think in that broad enough mm. sense. Yeah. But with that context, you can do a better job. Yeah. Um, Absolutely right, and and particularly in a regulated industry. So, um, you know, again, I I actually did a finance and banking degree at university, and so maybe right early on I had a better understanding of how the whole thing works. Yeah, topology but of the industry is absolutely. always fun. And, and, and also the differences. So, you know, in, in the UK there's probably 20, 30 banks. Um, in, in Germany there's thousands. In the US there's thousands. In Japan there's thousands. Um, and so just understanding a little bit the differences between how country, countries' banking markets have evolved um, has been very helpful for me anyway. And the role of the central bank um, increasingly uh, is becoming very visible. 
particularly in, in conversations around crypto and, and various different coins, um, I, I find that the, you know, the central banks are, are actually now being brought, maybe kicking and screaming a little bit, but they're being pulled into the limelight a little bit more. Yeah. And they're having to stand up and say, yes, I agree with that, or no, I don't agree with that, and why I don't agree with it. Um, so I, I, I feel a little bit lucky that I've had the chance to see lots of different perspectives on the industry, but um, it comes back to, in a regulated space, it definitely makes a good sense to understand how the pieces fit together before you try and change one of them. Nice. <laughs> I, like, I like that. Understand the basics, continue learning. Yeah. Sounds like a good rule for me. Um, and what's new? Uh, what's next for you and MasterCard? Obviously, there's yeah. a lot of different things happening, a lot of different geographies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's the thing that you're most excited about that's on the, uh, the to-do list? Well, uh, I guess what my, my most, uh, the project that's most exciting me at the moment is um, something that we'll be doing in the Nordic region in Europe. Uh, the, the P27 initiative, which is the, the biggest banks in the Nordic region, coming together and saying we want to deliver a single real-time payments platform, multi-currency, multi-country, um, is a big bold play uh, and so it's it's completely re-engineering the payments ecosystem in four countries so it's it's a little bit daunting but it's very exciting um, and but we're also implementing these new real-time payment systems all over the world uh, and just that in and of itself is exciting um, I, I I feel very very privileged to be involved in the in the industry in the way that we are um, and I feel that MasterCard has uh, really sought to understand the, 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 the payments landscape beyond their traditional play. Uh, and that positions them exceptionally well for a future that will continue to change quicker and quicker, where demands from customers will come faster and faster. Um, and the breadth of customers that we are looking to support continues to grow. So, um, I am uh, really excited about uh, what the future holds and I, um, I hope that we can scale the business and uh, continue to attract the talent that we need to take advantage of all those opportunities. Sounds great. All right, Paul, I will let you get back to the conference. So um, where can people find out more about you and MasterCard? MasterCard.com or Vocalink.com uh, and uh, feel free to come down to the booth. Uh, you'll be very welcome. Some good coffee and some good conversation. Sounds good. Could do with another coffee. All right. <laughs> As for me, you can find me over on Twitter at David Breer. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. I love reading those reviews. I mean, the good ones, not the bad ones. They're no bad ones, right? We're good. All right, cool. Uh, and uh, if you love the podcast, pass it on to a friend, a relative, your mum. I'm sure they'd love it. All right. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out to us on Twitter or email us on podcast.11fs.com. Thanks very much for joining us. Goodbye. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. 
Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Thank you so much, Paul, for MasterCard. Next up, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Soren Mortensen, Director of Global Financial Markets at IBM. Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews, coming to you from Cybos 2019 in London. I'm Simon Taylor, and it is my pleasure to be joined by Soren Mortensen, if I said that right? Yes. Director of Global Financial Markets at IBM. Uh, Soren, uh, thanks for coming to speak with us. How are you? Um, <laughs> Very well. It's been, although it's been a very, very busy conference already. I was. We were saying before we started recording. It's been. It's been a busy old year, hasn't it? <laughs> Especially in financial markets, things are, are never static. Um, but uh, why don't you just explain a little bit about what you do as director of um, global financial markets, IBM? I think it's fairly descriptive. But uh, what does that mean day to day? So basically, I'm one of the uh, industry vertical uh, specialists. So mm -hmm. I look at how. Uh, we take IBM technology across the board, ranging from cloud, AI, blockchain, through to quantum, and look at how we apply this uh, to financial markets um, and how we help our clients leveraging the benefits of the technologies. And, and I guess um, the thing I'd be keen to get your views on is, is what are you hearing from Cybos 2019? How, how has the conversation changed, do you think, versus the years before? Is there something that's really hot at the moment? Well, there's many things uh, uh, that are hot. One thing which is really, really hot uh, for us is also what we were discussing earlier is how the banks can start leveraging data uh, much more efficiently from ecosystems outside the industry and leveraging that data in order to be able to service the corporate clients much more efficiently. And I think that's interesting because we've, we've always had this explosion of data outside of the bank. And having that data outside of the bank to make things like risk decisions, maybe, or mm -hmm. to be able to push financing up the supply chain, or all kinds of stuff that you start. So, what are the use cases you're hearing? Like when people are interested about the data inside of their corporate clients or the data outside of the bank, can you can you make that concrete? Some tangible examples of, of where yes, we've seen. Yeah, I mean, this? it's always been uh, very difficult for banks to actually access data. Mm -hmm. um, and when I'm talking about ecosystems, I'm seeing these new ecosystems which are being created for other industries to share data amongst themselves right. much more efficiently. And that also opens up an opportunity for financial institutions to also access that data so that they can make data uh, uh, financial decisions based on that data. So an example of that is a network called TradeLens, uh, which was originally uh, an IBM and uh, Mask uh, uh, joint venture. I have to say this, I'm Danish, so I've been... Uh, yeah, they're in the Danish, I'm all uh, about it. <laughs> uh, where the initial objective was to basically track global trade, track uh, big containers being shipped across the globe. Yeah. And if you look at uh, uh, cross-border trading, this represents quite a substantial amount of global, uh, global trade to the tune of several trillion uh, every year. And this network was basically built to track from manufacturer through to, to uh, purchaser of good and how uh, uh, goods were uh, basically being transported onto the carriers, off from the carriers through to the, um, uh, the end buyer and it has all the transaction events uh, recorded on, on the network. Now that's of huge benefit for banks because 
they can see when one of their clients need to make a payment. So they understand why the clients need to make a payment. They can understand when, uh, what's it called, the um, uh, clients will need to make a, a uh, FX transaction. They can understand when clients need the financing, mm. when the goods might be delayed. So they move from sort of being that reactive or almost guesswork, because I, I always understood the job of being in originations in a, in a financial markets role as being sort of like reading the tea leaves of your clients. It's trying to, like, oh, are they going to need some asset financing soon? They've announced something to the market. Maybe I should call them. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually, if you can see within this network that there was there was some transactions building up that look like that, you could be a lot more proactive and you move from sort of that uh, reactive relationship with your clients to a much more proactive one Absolutely. where you become like almost the good waiter. You never notice that you're glass is empty it's just it's just there but not only you can be proactive you can also uh, by understanding much more much more uh, what your clients are doing you can be m- much more specialized and more customizable in terms of the, sure. the services that you provide to the client you can make uh, for yourself much better risk decisions indeed because you really understand where rather than the historical process where you had a form and you were trying to take through that some understanding of what the client's trying to achieve and really the, the, the nature of what a bank did was get away from the form and do the human piece. Mm-hmm. If data can speed that up and make it more efficient but also more effective, that's an interesting place. And, it, and are you seeing the beginnings of banks starting to do this? Is it, is it in getting traction? We are still in very, very early days. The networks uh, are growing. Tradelands by the end of uh, this year will have around 60% of global trade. Uh, oh, is that all? <laughs> is that all, yes, being tracked on the, on, on the network. And I, I would say the banks are now starting uh, being very, very interested in understanding how uh, they can leverage just that as an example, but we have other uh, supply chain networks, but uh, how they can uh, leverage these ecosystems and how they can not only build solutions around it, but also make much more efficient decisions it's on how they service their clients. It's interesting that uh, the, the banks have kind of uh, always had that question of how do you use data better, how do you use more data? Um, and there was the question for a while of like how do you monetize the data that banks already had? And it feels like it's gone the other way around, which is how do you use the data that's already out there in the external world um, and start putting that together? If, if industries are building these ecosystems, how do you become a supplier in there? Uh, do you think that's a shift in the conversation, or do you still think there's uh, there's, there's, there's a... still some value in, in data monetization uh, in, in the banks? Although I, w- I would rather say that it's more with uh, the FMIs, like the financial markets infrastructures, right? Sure. Uh, uh, where you you start seeing, and we, we've had an example, for example, with Mastercard and IBM have a partnership where you you uh, completely neutralize and normalize the data, mm-hmm. but to a level where it still has value, yes. and, and then you provide data insights and all that stuff without you actually being able to see the individual uh, credit card transaction and what have you. The same thing uh, certainly applies to certain FMIs that traditionally have had a data service, yes. but they now have the opportunity to go much, much further, right. initially based on their internal data. Sure. Uh, but, but then these ecosystems really sort of power that up, I imagine. Not only that, but also, for example, you can correlate it with uh, completely different data sources. Hmm. So, for example, equity index with weather. Yeah? Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, for example, if you're tracking 
an industry like the construction industry, uh, weather data might have impact on, on, uh, on the index. Completely. Uh, the same thing, you can track commodity prices with weather data and so forth. So we see a lot of activity in not only tracking data from ecosystems, but also having completely alternative data sources uh, like weather yep. um, in order to provide your clients much more insight on the data. So it seems like the art of the possible is, is almost frustratingly unlimited. And so I guess when there's new data ecosystems out there, and if I'm a bank and I'm looking at all of these data ecosystems, how do I decide which use case I should move forward? Is it, is it a case of uh, understanding the, the ecosystems better? or? Well, I think it's, it's, it's understanding what data can you actually get. Uh, you start with understanding what data you can uh, get access to. And we then have the approach that we, we uh, have kind of like a design thinking ideation right. process on the data. So we, we understand what are the data elements that you, 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 you can work with, what you can combine it with and what have you. And then uh, through that, uh, we work with our clients to create some use cases. And, and through a, a very well-proven process, we end up selecting some initial use cases that basically prove the scenario. Mm. And these we take forward and we build from there. And there's always, I guess, that art of sort of uh, the use case that looks good on paper might not be very easy to implement. The one that's easy to implement might not have a lot of benefits. So you're always trying to find that sort of uh, not too hot, not too cold sort of. Uh, yeah, and that, that's all part of the process and the data analysis in, in terms of understanding, you know, it's like what data do we have? How What's the quality of the data? What's the frequency of the data, et cetera, et cetera? etc so that we can understand when we create the use cases and more importantly when we prioritize the use cases what is it uh, what are going to be the quick wins that still prove the case yeah. that this is uh, something that we can build from yeah? so this all begs the data ownership question right so <laughs> if these ecosystems have the ownership of that data and uh, how, you know, how are the ecosystems managing that question and, and where does a bank come into that conversation because they're obviously going to be concerned about privacy regulations, GDPR and other things. Absolutely. Uh, and each ecosystem is slightly different than the mm -hmm. others. Uh, and that's why it, um, the data ownership and, and, and who can give you access to the data and allow, allow access uh, will vary from ecosystems mm -hmm. to ecosystem. So one ecosystem uh, that, that we have, it's really the, the, the large co companies who control the data. We just provide the platform. Right. Whereas other ecosystems, uh, people who put their data in sign up for it can be shared. Yeah? Right, sure. And then we can provide uh, uh, access to, uh, to that data. So it varies from, from system to system, uh, from network to network. Sorry. And network to network. And so then if, if I'm in the banks and I'm looking at this, is, do I need a specialism internally or, uh, you know, it, at, do I need to really understand DLT, for instance? Do I need to understand data, or uh, what's, the, what's the thing I need to bring to it as a bank? Um, you don't necessarily need to un understand uh, DLT, but uh, and typically the people that uh, we, we are talking to are people from the business yes, okay. who are looking at, once the scenarios, the, the art of the possible, uh, it's really a matter of uh, being innovative and start thinking about how can we improve our client interaction, how can we service our client better, as opposed to 
which technology have we picked for this? So it's more of a business outcome conversation and, yes. and zeroing in on that. And once you've got identified the business outcome, the rest of it sort of starts to get a lot easier. Yes. That's really, really powerful. Um, I guess uh, I want to ask a couple of other questions as well. Like, um, there's, there's uh, been a lot of conversation in the last five, 10 years around cloud. Um, there's always the question of cloud migration. What does good cloud migration look like? What does bad cloud <laughs> migration look like? Because there's, the, I, I've definitely seen both. Yes, uh, and, and certainly cloud migration to cloud is something that uh, uh, is non-negligible. And, and, uh, especially in financial uh, so, markets, right? Especially in financial markets and, and, and poses its, its challenges. I think one of the, uh, the trends that we see is more of a move uh, towards a hybrid type uh, cloud. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly uh, with the IBM Red Hat acquisition, that is something that we, we focus a lot of, inclu on, uh, including in, in financial markets. Because what, what we see is uh, we now start seeing a trend where people have started, maybe started their business in the cloud, mm -hmm. like born in the cloud, and there's now starting saying, well, actually, we want to take our data in-house. We want to manage our own, uh, our own data. Mm. So we happen to have the application in the cloud, uh, but we want to make, manage our data It's a really powerful nuance. It is a powerful nuance, yes. Um, whereas we also see uh, one of the bigger challenges uh, 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 for cloud is looking at uh, the old legacy systems uh, in the banks um, and having a business case to take the entire legacy world into the cloud. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense, does it? It's challenging, let's put yeah. it this way. Because so, I worry about <coughs> lift and shift versus actually... So the, uh, I'm, I'm a fan of the, the story of when they were first building uh, iron bridges and the people who built the first iron bridges for the railways in the sort of 1870s, 1880s were uh, building them with the same uh, construction methods they would have built a wooden bridge. Mm -hmm. but, and they found that the wooden bridges were stronger than the iron bridges because they weren't use, playing the technology to its strengths. And sometimes the way in which you configure a legacy platform on-prem is not the way you would configure it for cloud. So there's, exactly. there's some nuance there that's important. And therefore, the migration to cloud of an application is not necessarily always the best solution. Yeah? and maybe you need to migrate on, onto a more modern platform yes. for that. The challenge, of course, in the pro-trade space is to justify the financial expense, the risk, uh, and the effort required to do so. Yeah, indeed. I mean, wh whenever you're dealing in, in post-trade, you're dealing with you know, the mission-critical sort of infrastructure, and mm -hmm. you're dealing with a massively regulated market, and the cost of getting something wrong is, is, is really significant. But also, I mean, if these systems, despite being maybe slightly more expensive. I mean, if they work, yeah, what is your business case for change? Mm. Yeah? And, and certainly, with all the risk and the effort required to change your back office systems, and I certainly have the scars uh, from mm. doing so, uh, uh, you really have to be... Uh, you really have to be committed or have to have the great business case. Yeah, yeah we, we've definitely seen uh, good and bad examples. Um, no. I'm, I'm interested... Um, do you think, so we, we hear so much about quote-unquote AI, um, mm -hmm. but um, to me, ML and specifically deep learning uh, have become broadly usable across a number of, of parts of financial services. Um, but it's escaping the buzzword um, and getting into the reality a little bit. Do you think this is something where 
banks have really, and financial services generally, have grasped cognitive and, and ML. Have they, have they started to use it day to day? And where are we at in that learning curve? Uh, we're still at very, very early stages. I mean, uh, and uh, uh, I think AI today for me is more augmented intelligence than actually artificial intelligence. And I don't think we'll get to the artificial intelligence and uh, certainly not, well, hopefully not in my lifetime. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we do see a growth pattern and, and the use cases and the leverage of machine learning and AI technologies uh, has now come to the level where you now start having to have guidelines, uh, more structured guidelines on how to use it. So IBM have worked uh, with the European Commission to do the seven guidelines for, uh, for, oh, wow. for yeah. AI uh, and AI uh, ethics. And, and, and certainly we, we are moving towards an environment where the data, the models that you use for AI w will have to reflect the ethics of the organization, so, which is a reflection of it is being used more and more. Mm -hmm. yeah? But as I say, we're still in very, very early days. Um, a long way to go. And there's a long way to go. So yes. what's coming next for you, for IBM, as, as you look at, at where we're going? I see the growth of AI and machine learning, uh, and I think that's going to take a path. Certainly for us, getting the hybrid cloud aspects into financial services and make more use of that. And then last but not least, we, we are, as we were discussing earlier, we start seeing the uh, emerging cooperation around leveraging like brand new technologies like quantum, or brand new, but uh, really bleeding edge technology like quantum, and starting experimenting on seeing, yeah, moving from the academic use cases to the more practical use cases, yeah. and, and testing uh, the technology to see how that can improve. Um, so across the life cycle, there's stuff coming to reality, there's stuff still a little bit further out, but it, all of it's coming out at you thick and fast. Um, people want to know more, where can they get hold of you? Well, we have uh, the IBM website. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> Threeletters.com. <laughs> Threeletters.com slash finance. Oh. And certainly I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, all my details are on LinkedIn and people can certainly contact me at any time and we're happy to be uh, to engage with them. Martin, thank you for being with us here today on Physics Side. Okay. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, as for me, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, remember to subscribe to the podcast, review us on iTunes, and of course, tell all your friends too. Thank you. Thank you, Soren. That concludes our Cybos episodes for this year. Wow, what a show that was. Uh, it was a big one. Thank you to all of our guests, and thank you, Cybos, for having us as a media partner this year. Please don't forget to check out 11 Years, The Rise of UK Fintech, available for free at 11years.film. It's just more great content, and you know you love a bit of YouTube now and then. Follow us on Twitter and all of the social media platforms for more exclusive content, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. We do love those reviews. Thank you, and goodbye for now.